Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio by my lovely co-hosts, Medea Ocher, the managing editor at LARB, and Kate Wolf, editor-at-large. Hi! Hi, Eric! <laughs> Hi, Eric! <laughs> Hi! <laughs> Today we actually have an interview from a recent LARB Luminary Dinner with Alan Alda, the very famous Academy Award-winning actor, director, screenwriter, and author. It was interviewed by Casey Cole, the former science writer for the Los Angeles Times. Her science writing has also appeared in the New York Times, the New Yorker, and many other publications of note. She's also a journalism professor at the University of Southern California for those in the cheap seats, USC. They're joined in conversation by our publisher and editor-in-chief, Tom Lutz. Dea, I wasn't actually able to make it to this event because I was out of town, but you were there. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like? Yeah, it was a really lovely dinner with a number of guests and with Alan Aldo, who was just as uh, sweet as you might imagine him to be. And they had a great conversation. I mean, I I think... As a younger person, I don't have probably the same relationship with Alan Alda and his work as other people do. I saw him on reruns of MASH, but... Same. That Woody Allen. And Woody in Crimes Allen. and Misdemeanors. Oh, Woody Allen yeah. right. movies. He just proved to be a delight. One of the things that really struck me and that will be in, in this recording is... His answer to a question about the Me Too movement, which I thought was by far the most articulate, generous and kind articulation that I had heard given by a man without prompting and without guidance, without preparation, it seemed to me, just a a spontaneous offer of kindness and generosity that I had not heard before. Mm. It was really incredible. The women around the room, I think, wanted to clap. Somebody did start clapping in that (laughs) awkward kind of one-person clapping kind of way. But I truly had never heard a man articulate some of the things that are, I think, difficult to understand about the movement and difficult for people to grapple with. And so that part was a real pleasure. All right. Well, I really look great. Yeah, let's get right to that conversation and turn it over to Tom Lutz. Thanks very much, everybody. Thanks for coming. These nights are some of the fun of uh, running LARB. So many wonderful people. And tonight, of course, we're all here to hear Alan Alda. Casey Cole is herself a fantastic science writer. The book that's for sale out here of hers is called Something Wonderful Happens. And in my experience, every time I'm in a room with Casey Cole, something wonderful happens. And tonight will be one of those times. So Casey Cole and Alan Alda. Thank you. That yeah. you wrote notes on your wrist and then they. I was in a sweating. musical a long time ago, and Sheldon Harnick, who wrote the lyrics, we were out of town in Boston trying it out. And Sheldon rewrote the song seven times. And the seventh time, I had all these different versions in my head. And he said, You don't have to put it in tonight. And I said, No, no, I can do it. I can do it. And then about a half hour before the curtain went up, I got scared. So I wrote all the lyrics on the back of my hand (laughs) in ink. And I get out there. I'm so scared that I'm going to forget it. 
I look down, I'm dripping with sweat, and the words are dripping off my hand. None of the words were left on my hand. I'm just, I'm just, so in a panic, I made up a whole new lyric. <laughs> All the words rhymed, and it made sense. And when it was over, I said to Sheldon, I'm so sorry. He said, why, why? <laughs> I said, I, I made up the whole lyric. He said, yeah, it sounded pretty good. <laughs> How come I could do that in two seconds and he had seven tries at it and he's the world's greatest songwriter? I don't get it. Well, yeah. No, I think he just I, wasn't listening. <laughs> well, that's probably true. I'm going to actually try to connect the dots of why we're all here, if I may, just for sure, a second. Sure, I'd like to know myself. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm going to... Yeah, and I'm sure, given the way memory works or mostly doesn't work, that I probably made all of this up. But when I first moved to Los Angeles, one of the nicest things that happened to me was meeting Eric Lax and Karen and being part of Penn. And I realized how important writers and artists were in a very serious way because they were being killed and imprisoned and tortured all over the world. And I really was not aware of the work that Penn was doing, and Eric has been one of my heroes ever since. My memory is that you actually had a lot to do with getting Shell Oil to stop buying oil from Nigeria when they were being so terrible to writers. That may not be exactly right. That was incredible, but everything I'm, which I'm really so impressed by what Alec does and what he talks about with commonality. So I just wanted to say something. One of the first things that happened to me when I got involved with Penn was they want you to kind of take on a writer as a, I forget what the word were, but minder, I think, actually was the word. And somebody asked me if I would do a Ken Sarawiwa. And I said, that's a, well, I can't remember that name. I can't pronounce it. I, you know, give me somebody. And of course, this turns out to be the most amazing person who was treated horribly in Nigeria. And I met his brother and everybody through Penn. And it really, it really turned my life around in a big way about how something that seems unfamiliar and throws you off. And you think, I don't have anything in common with that. And you realize you have everything in common with that. So to Alan, watching Scientific American Frontiers for the first time, to see somebody who was actually just asking questions of scientists and paying it attention, just I was floored. And then I went to see QED, which was going on about the same time, which was his play about Richard Feynman. And actually, Judy Davidson is here. You did that partly with Gordon, right? And then afterward, he did a discussion on science and art. And I was so impressed with what he had to say and how smart you are. <laughs> I knew you were talented. So I asked uh, Kip Thorne, who you were doing a thing with, to give you a book of mine, and you already had it. So that was really an incredible thing. And then the improv thing, when you came to Annenberg, and it's somebody who was meeting with us, a member of the faculty, said, had the sense to ask Alan what he wanted to do. And when he said he wanted to teach improv to scientists, I thought it was the most idiotic thing ever. <laughs> well, I know. Nobody that I know had done it before. I'm beginning to find out that other people have been experimenting in the same way. Yeah. But this was 10 or 11 years ago. We had just finished the program, Scientific American Frontiers, which ran for about 11 or 12 years. And during that time, I realized that just by having a relaxed conversational connection with the scientist, something would come out of me that was genuine. 
I simply wanted to understand them. I wasn't asking questions for the benefit of the audience to hear a lecture in response to a cue. I really wanted to understand myself. That did something to the scientist as well. Suddenly the camera disappeared. It was just me and the scientist. And I thought, the reason that this is happening is that I've been trained in, as an actor by experience, but the only real training I ever had as an actor outside of the experience was improvisation. The thing that improvisation does for you is it puts you together with the other person. You read the other person and respond truly in the moment. You're like a leaf in the breeze. Something flutters off the other person, you flutter in exchange. You almost can read each other's mind. One of the basic tenets is you make your partner look good. You don't look good at the partner's expense. This kind of thing brings out the insides of people, the tender, innocent part of them, the vulnerable part of them. It's, they're safe. And that connection that I had between myself and the scientists, I thought, maybe we can teach scientists, starting with improv and going on to all kinds of communication based on that basic connection, would that work? So Casey and I were going to talk in front of an audience about something. I don't know what it was, art and science? Yeah, I don't know what it was. something like that. But I said, as long as I'm going to be at USC, how about if we experiment and you get 20 engineering students and ask them to come in and just talk about each one, talk about his or her work to the other 19 students for a minute or two minutes. And they did that, and then we improvised for three hours. They had never been introduced you to see, this they before. They were terrible the first time, right? Well, some, now it was very yeah. interesting. This, I've, I've seen borne out many times. There was a range of ability. Some of them were almost personal and clear. Some of them were just married to their PowerPoint. And PowerPoint, I love what somebody said about that. Power corrupts and PowerPoint corrupts absolutely. <laughs> so some of them just like never took their eyes off the PowerPoint, never looked at the people they were talking to and made not much sense. After the improvising, three hours later, they were asked to talk again. Everybody, no matter what stage they had come in at, everybody was better. Pretty much everybody. And everybody in the room was amazed, especially Casey Cole. But more than her, I was amazed because I had never done it. I had never put civilians through this to see what it would do. Can I bring this just a step further, which I want to do, and then I'm going to shut up about your book? Because Don't shut up about my book. No, okay. no, no, I, I, no, I thought yet. I would be okay there. Because that is a part of it. But the book goes even so much further. And part of what we connected over it did have to do with many, many things, physics being among them. Alan has a way of even reading the book of mine that's out here and seeing a line buried in the middle that seems to have nothing to do with anything. One of them was Frank Oppenheimer, the younger brother of the father of the atomic bomb, who tried to make things better in his own way. But anyway, he says at one point, that one of the mistakes people do is that they think that you only judge other people on what you're good at. So if you're a physicist, you only think physicists are smart. Oh. And you don't pay attention to other people. Somehow he picks that out of, you know, all of these were. He was so insightful. 
But the book has so much to do with what we so much need, I think, now, which has to do with yes and, which has to do with seeing two sides of things. And, and my shtick is physics, you know, quantum theory and general relativity. And the bottom line is, you need to look at opposite sides. Of, you need to look at contradictory, mutually exclusive points of view. That's where the real deep truth lies in anything. And your book, I mean, and I'm not going to say anything else, but the book is about much more also than science communication. It's about looking at other people. It's about seeing commonality in people you think you would have nothing to do with. It's a big, big deal, and I can't imagine anything right now in our society more important than being able to say, yes, I hear you, and so and I'm And what's gonna, the next step? And, and you yeah. know, that came to us from the scientists we were training I helped start the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. And we do hundreds of workshops, 150 last year in the United States and several other countries. And we've trained over 10,000 scientists and medical professionals in the past eight or nine years. But as we were training them, they were starting to make us understand that it's not just for communicating science and medicine because... They would say to us things like, and I'm not kidding, they would say these words, you know, this is helping my marriage. (laughs) And I began to realize that managing people in business, selling, parents and children, a mother trying to get her daughter to stop with the drugs, how are they going to relate? They have completely different points of view, as Casey was saying, that mother and daughter can suddenly realize that they don't share a commonality in the way they look at things. And one bit of research I came across that really just digs down into that idea was an experiment was done where teachers and their students answered some questions and questionnaires. And when the teachers and students realized that they had four or five things in common, the students' grades went up, and they learned more. It wasn't just the grades. They were more involved in what they were learning. And that was an unconscious effect. They just realized, oh, this kid also likes windsurfing or whatever it is. And there's a connection. And it's, I think, similar to the connection we get with improvising when you allow the other person in. That's really the basis of this, letting them in and not, not being afraid of the stranger. Yeah. And it, I just wanted to say finally that LARB, that's my Los Angeles Review of Books, which has created this literary, artistic, political community out of nothing in five or six years, has done in a way the same thing, bringing together a real community of people out of a real need, out of a void, out of something that really needed to be done. It's an amazing thing to begin looking for what you have in common and what you can do in common with other people. And one of the things that can come from that is what the improvising does, which allows you, and this is the essence of what I think we've learned over the past 10 years, really learning how to teach it. The essence of it, I think, is that you're aware not when you're trying to communicate. You're aware not so much of what you want to say, because that doesn't really matter if they don't get it. 
you're tracking what they're thinking as you talk to them. What are their responses? You can read it on their face. You can read it in the way they hold their body. Even if they're not there, you can figure out what they're probably thinking when you're writing for them. If I put down this sentence, I've done something to that person's brain, to the reader's brain, then what are they prepared to hear next? And that can go on through the whole piece. You can really have an effect on somebody. Not all people, not everybody is going to be the same, so maybe your audience is going to be different when you write this piece and different from when you write the other piece. But the whole notion is this connection. And if you can establish that connection, I think you're most of the way there. It's not so much what you have to say, it's whether they get it. One of the many things I learned from the book, because the improvisation is not just go, right? The exercises you do with people guide them in various ways. And I was very impressed by the mirroring exercises because they're, as I take it, the two main components of this theory of communication that you've developed for yourself is empathy on the one hand and theory of mind on the other. This, of course, happens over time. You know, it doesn't just take two seconds like that. But what can happen after people do this for a while is when nobody is the leader, there's a feeling that you get. Something happens where you are aware that you're in sync with the other person. And it's a very interesting, sometimes it's just momentary, but it's a very interesting feeling. And this sync is possible. It's been shown that it's possible. You tell a story to somebody who's in a brain scan, their brains reveal some of the same activity that you experienced when you saw the movie that you're telling them about. And one of the ways you can sync up with another person is through story. And some of the research in using scans has shown that. But... The sense of connection, the sync, is really possible. It was studied in Israel by a, a scientist called Uri Alon, who made a device that would let people mirror each other on the device, moving handles back and forth. And when they got to the point where neither one knew who was leading, the pattern, the jittery pattern of following the leader disappeared. They were both leaders. Isn't that interesting? I wanted to mention Antonio just while you Yeah, Antonio, he heard we were going to talk about this. Because he was one of the first, for me anyway, one of his first books, who talked about this and who talked about the importance of emotion that we use our, we try to use our heads to, you know, convince other people of things and without getting into their feelings, we really don't get anywhere. So I think that's just so... And Gazaniga, you know, did you ever meet Gazaniga? Yeah, he's, yeah. He's terrific, and he did all that work with two hemispheres separated. And he is the one who came up with the idea of the interpreter or the explainer in the brain somewhere over here. When things are inexplicable, the explainer gets to work or the interpreter gets to work, and you come out with a story that explains why things are that way. If one hemisphere is not communicating with the other hemisphere with the corpus callosum, you see something on one side of the brain and you make a choice on the other side of the brain. You're supposed to put these two things together. And for instance, a picture of a chicken that you only see with this side of your head and the picture of a shovel that you see with this side of your head, you pick them both out and they don't go together. So you say, why did you say those two things go together? You say, well, you need the shovel to clean out the chicken house. 
but it's a completely made-up story that some circuit in the brain needs to do, I guess, to keep things stable. And sometimes I wish Gazanigo were here tonight because I'd like to ask him, or I could have asked Antonio. I sometimes think the images that come up randomly in our heads during a dream maybe get turned into a story that we remember when we wake up thanks to the interpreter function. I think we need to do that in Congress. We need to have people yeah, mirroring each other. Anyway, I can't tell I you how many Trump. people have said, why don't you send this book to each member of Congress? One of the things I thought about when you were talking about empathy and the way in which, whether it's a mirroring exercise like that or it's somebody explaining a complicated scientific concept to somebody, or, I mean, I was thinking of the Ouija board just now when we were kids, when all of a sudden the Ouija board seemed to be going by itself because you're all in it together. There's you something... mean it doesn't work? <laughs> I'm s- sorry to break this to you. <laughs> oh, ne- never mind. Forget I said that. Um, <laughs> I kept thinking, well, there are certain politicians, I won't name them right at the moment, but who are communicating a mile a minute with absolutely no empathy. And it's not exactly mind reading, but there's something about demagoguery that's not mind reading, not empathy, and yet effective. Well, here's, what, here's the take I have on it. I went to a lot of trouble in the book to try to define what I meant by empathy because there are many uses of the word. and They're all useful depending on, on how clear you make it, that, what you mean by it. I don't think empathy is the same as compassion, and I don't think empathy automatically enables you to behave better toward your fellow person. It enables you, for me, strictly speaking, to be aware or to sense, to feel what they're going through. Some scientists describe the process of empathy as you knowing what they're going through by actually feeling it yourself. And that gives you insight into what the other person is experiencing. But knowing what they're going through can help you behave better toward them if you want to behave better. If you want to use it against other people, you can use empathy very destructively. I think all bullies are pretty empathic. They know what makes you hurt, and they do it deliberately. Interrogators, especially ruthless interrogators, know exactly how to make you feel helpless. They know what you're feeling. They know how to trigger the feelings that'll put you at their mercy. Some politicians do that. I think that's what you were describing Mm -hmm. in demagogues. The whole process of propaganda in Germany during the war, I think, successfully used empathy. And in this country, we used empathy to some extent in the propaganda. So I think it's helpful, at least in the scheme that I have in the book, to see empathy as a tool for communication, but not the way to achieve goodness necessarily. It can be annoying sometimes. I was looking for a cab at Columbus Circle in New York. And it was 4 o'clock. And at the end of the day, at 4 o'clock, they're all changing shifts. And they've got to go back to the... So they don't want to pick you up if you're not going next door to where they keep their cab. And it always irritated me because I drove a cab when I was in my 20s. And I knew that I had to pick people up no matter where I wanted to go. Wherever they wanted to go, I had to take them. Now, when this happened... I had been working for weeks on trying to increase my empathy. I was doing exercises that would increase my empathy. So the cab pulls up, and he rolls down the window. He says, where are you going? And I get crazy with rage. You know? 
I think, what is he? He's supposed to take me wherever I want to go. But I, now I have this empathy, and I think, well, let me think about this. What's he going through? He's at the end of his day. He's got to get home. He's got to give the cab. He's been working. He's been up since 4 in the morning. So I'll, I'll tell him where I'm going, and I give him the address. He says, get in. So I get in. He says, what's the cross street? Now I go crazy again. <laughs> Isn't this his job? He's supposed to know the crossing. But I'm all empathized up now. <laughs> and I say, don't worry, I'm looking it up on my iPhone for you. So now he says, you know, you're a very nice person. People get in this cab, they don't care about me at all. They just think I'm a machine. I've had to go to the bathroom for a half an hour. And you're a nice, I said, don't, don't, don't go, don't take me where I'm going. Just take me the block away. There's another, there's a bathroom at the gas station on 96th Street. You can go. He says, no, no, you're too nice. <laughs> now this man is giving up his kidneys for me. <laughs> so he took me where I was going. But I, if it did get to be a little annoying because I, he was suffering for me, you know, this poor guy. But look at how that exchange could have been, the way it would have been. First of all, I wouldn't have had a cab ride in the old days. I'd have walked away. I had a habit of just walking away. Ask me where I'm going, I'm not going to talk about it. And I suffered because I didn't get the cab. But he felt better, I felt better, he got to pee, everything was good. (laughs) One of the best lines in the book, I think, has to do with, what is it, that working out feels good after you do it. But practicing empathy feels good while you're doing it. That's true. But you both dread, you dread both of them before you do it. <laughs> right? You know, we all, we all know the pleasure of family and home and the hearth and everything. And we travel great distances to get away from our families. You know, at some point in our lives, we, most people go through that. And yet, for me, one of the most powerful themes in literature and theater is reconciliation, is people coming together who thought they had nothing in common, even within a family. Isn't that always a powerful experience to see that happen? We all want that. And that's what empathy does for you. It enables you, to, if as long as it has a good outcome, if you actually don't want to hurt the people or make them slaves to your thinking. You probably had another question. I never let you get to it. I have a bunch of them, and I know that people here have questions as well, because this is a bunch of smart, interesting people, so I want to turn it over to them, but I will ask you one more, because I want to give people one more hit on what the book is about, and I thought that the way to do that would be for you to tell the kind of origin story of both the title and your movement into the whole idea of communicating science in the beginning. I have no idea what that is. Yes, you do. Your smilectomy. Oh, yes. <laughs> right, I'm sorry. Are no, we? that's good. Yeah, I love it. Yes, you do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great on the stage. The actor says, I don't know my line. And the stage manager says, yes, you, you do. do. <laughs> it's such a good story. That's why. <laughs> so I, uh, when I was 12 years, this all began when I was 12 years old. I wanted to get a bird out of a tree. And I picked up a rock about that size, and I threw it up toward the bird to scare him out of the tree. And I learned something interesting about gravity that day. <laughs> Smashed my mouth, broke my front tooth, and about 40 years later, I had to have the tooth taken out because by now it was blue. So I went to a doctor who was going to take the tooth out and 
replace it with a fake tooth. So there was going to be a socket where he took the tooth out. And he said, I, have, I invented this procedure, and it's uh, really innovative, and I would like to do it on you. I said, well, well, so what is it? He says, I take a flap of your gum, and I pull it over the socket, and the socket gets a blood supply, and it heals much better. I said, fine, that's good. It sounded like he knew what he was doing. So now he's going to do the operation. He's right in front of me. He's got the scalpel inches from my mouth. And he says, now there will be some tethering. And I said, well, no. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? I don't like to hear that. He says, tethering. There'll be tethering. I said, what, what do you mean? He says, tethering, tethering. He never, t I still don't know what he meant by tethering. But there he was in his white coat, you know, he was the guru, and I let him do the operation. And you know that, that little thing, that's frenulum, it's that little piece of tissue between your lip and your gum. He cut it. And as a result, my lip hung down like a drape in an old hotel. <laughs> I had to do a scene in a movie a couple of weeks later, and the cameraman comes to me after a shot. He says, I thought you were going to smile in that shot. I said, I did. He said, no, you were sneering. <laughs> I said, I wasn't. I was smiling. He says, go look in the mirror. And there I'm looking. I got a big sneer on my face. So I called the doctor, and I said, I just want you to know that I make a living with my face. <laughs> And sometimes I have to use it to smile. And he, he sent me a letter that was designed to keep me from suing him. He never said, I'm sorry, I thought you understood. They never explained it. And interestingly, they did a study at the Cleveland Clinic where when doctors, instead of defending themselves when they made a mistake, would apologize for the mistake to the patient, the number of lawsuits went down I think by two-thirds. It was just, I mean, people yeah. want to be treated like people, like humans. So the one good thing about that operation was I was able to play villains much better now. <laughs> <laughs> and the essence of that was that if he had read my face, he'd know that I was uneasy about what he was about to do. All he was concerned with was what he wanted to communicate to me. And he was using his own private jargon. I had no idea what he was talking about. And if he would just have read my face, I would have been at ease. He wouldn't have had to be afraid of my suing. I had no idea that I would sue him. I, the only time I thought of suing him was when he defended himself against me. <laughs> and I never did. I never thought of such a thing. But that's sort of what but it's about. Just to finish, what you start with that. You end with the Christmas truce. Oh, Do you I, want yeah. to tell that story? You all know about that Christmas truce in World War I, right? Yeah. To me, that's, that's a wonderful it. example yeah. of commonality arising out of conflict. These two groups who are sure, well, they know that each group is trying to kill as many of the other group as possible. And at Christmas time, when the Americans hear the Germans singing Christmas carols, they recognize the songs, they remember home and they stop shooting at each other. And the next morning, Christmas morning, they even start, they improvise a ball and they play soccer together. And one guy from Europe, from France, I think, remembered his German barber from Paris on the other side. And they realized their common humanity. And then about... Twelve hours later, the officers came in and said, anybody who doesn't shoot them is going to get shot. 
and the commonality was back. Now you gotta, you gotta destroy commonality to make a war, and you have to achieve commonality to prevent a war. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. Now let's get back to our conversation with Tom Lutz, Alan Alda, and Casey Cole. So, questions? Two things. One is you mentioned improvisation as the training that you have. When was that and what was that? But then how did you get into this whole endeavor, this whole area or areas of interest? How did that evolve? You mean, for instance, working with scientists? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I had always been interested in science since I was a kid. I was a, an amateur inventor. I was always very curious. I took apart my mother's watch to see how it worked. <laughs> I, was, I was only about six years old. Whoops. And uh, yeah, and I couldn't get it back together again. I could, I couldn't get the case back again. So I bit it to, to and I left my tooth marks in it. So she knew where, the, how it, why it wasn't working. You know. So when I was in my twenties, I was avidly reading science books and science, you know, Scientific American Frontiers. And when Mash was over. I got a letter asking if I wanted to host Scientific American Frontiers on television. And I said, I'm really interested in doing it, but not if all you want is me to come in and introduce the show on camera and then read a narration off camera. I want to talk to the scientists because it would have been, a, I thought, a wonderful chance to learn. Every time I've had a chance, any time in my life, to find out what scientists are up to, I really want to know, and I go into great detail with them. And I did. what's wonderful is they want to tell me. They want to share it. That's why we are able to train so many scientists in communication, because they want to be able to share it with other people. So after the show was over, I realized that improv could bring it together, and then I experimented at Casey Cole's school. And then whenever I found myself at a university, I'd ask the president of the university, wouldn't it be a good idea to teach scientists to communicate? And one, the Nobel Prize winner said, no, we have too much science to teach. <laughs> I mean, now, they don't say that now because people really understand how important it is to communicate. And I think it's, they've made the connection that is inherent in their work. You can't do science without communication. You can't collaborate. You can't report your results. You can't talk about it to the press. You can't give a lecture so people can give you money for it. You know, it just is essential. We, we, we even teach scientists how to talk to people in Congress. Mm -hmm. There was one congressman, I was explaining this to him, and he said, he said no, I'm way ahead of you. He said, I was at a meeting between scientists on one side of a table and members of Congress on the other side, and the scientists were explaining why they needed billions of dollars, and the Members of Congress were passing notes to each other that said, do you know what this guy is saying? <laughs> they just couldn't get it. Just because everybody's in the award business in one way or another, there's a lot of that in literature, is that one of the great answers 
you gave, the, I, I know who you're talking about, but he said, well, we already give an award for science communication. And you said, well, that rewards people who already know how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> what about everybody else? Yeah, I mean, it would was... be great to give somebody who couldn't communicate at all and with training now is a star. That would that would be a good award because the training is important. Anybody like to give testimony? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I haven't read your book yet, so I, I'm going to ask you about something. Oh, that's yeah. okay. Like Would you like to know my favorite color? Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was what I was, yeah. Yeah, good. <laughs> no, I was just thinking, I went to college in uh, New York in 1979. It was the year of um, the seduction of Joe Tyne and that movie, oh. which I loved. And I just remember that time very well. And you were kind of, I don't know if you thought of it this way, but you were kind of thought of as the leading male feminist in the late 70s, right? Like you kind of had a reputation, right? Yeah. For, And I just wondered about what you make of the Me Too movement, because, you know, so much good is coming from it, but there's scary parts of it, like anonymous accusations and so forth and feminism has taken such amazing turns since then and such an unexpected path and I just wondered about your take on the Me Too movement that's going on now. First of all I'm because I have been an active and outspoken feminist for a long time for 45 or 50 years and it's an amazing feeling to have invested so much of my life in that hoping for change, trying to help change come about, to see women just not taking it anymore. And in that regard, I think Me Too and Time's Up are really powerful tools. It's, I think it's a little chaotic the way most movements are in the beginning. And you always hope that excesses or sloppiness doesn't hurt the movement itself. I'm going to make a connection, if I may, and, and put it with Tom also, which is, and I'm going to plug your one of your other books also. He's an amazing writer. I think it's, I understood while talking to myself things I learned. Things I overheard while overheard talking to while myself. Overheard while talking to myself. The, la <laughs> the last three words, I think, are notice, notice, notice. notice. Yeah. And Tom's writing, which is all over the map, but about really, really interesting things, including being sloth, are about paying attention to other people. And I think, you know, part of, we have so many arguments about this, is not listening to what other people are saying, but not noticing what, what other, how other people are reacting, yeah. as opposed to saying what you want to get across. It's I think hard. it's very difficult to talk about this because it has the chance to change things so much for the better. And I hope it does. A lot of my friends, a lot of our women friends are worried that there isn't a sense sometimes of proportion. Of is, is killing some, does killing somebody deserve the same punishment as insulting them? And if there's zero tolerance should somebody be denied his, not only his present career, but should his past career be wiped off the page, regardless of what he's done? So there's that discussion going on. I hear that discussion going on, that women are talking is, and putting emphasis on the minor, the apparently minor abuses that build up, I think is very important. 
you put a stone in this pocket, you put another stone in this pocket, another one in that pocket, pretty soon you can't swim. And those little slights of not being listened to in the office, you're talking about being listened to, Mm -hmm. little slight like being interrupted repeatedly, being explained to, they seem, you know, there's even the catchphrase, mansplaining, and it's turned into a joke, but it's not a joke. Mm -hmm. And those things add up. And I think they set the stage, and this may be going too far, but in the similar way that sometimes children are prepared for abuse, I think you can, with little slights, get somebody ready to not object if you can go further. If there's a whole culture of saying, you're going to take it, whatever we do. So I think it's a great thing that that there's, there's a, this is brought to the surface now, and there's going to be a reaction to it, and I hope we don't fall apart into two camps that can't understand that everybody's going to benefit exactly. by respect. Exactly, by listening to somebody else. It's hard. It is very hard to talk about because there are passions on all sides, but the main thing is respect. What advice would you give to a 40 or 50-year-old man today? Well, it kind of depends where the man was. Arlene and I make a habit of making friends of all ages. It's healthy for us to have very young friends. And I see a difference in a lot of young men from when I was young. It's not taken for granted so much that the woman will do things for you. My mother said to me, and she, and she from, in many ways she conformed to the stereotype. She called herself a clinging vine. <laughs> you know. However, she told me a story once of uh, two days after she was married to my father, he gave her a pair of his socks and she said, "What's this?" He said, "Wash them." She said, "I don't know how to wash socks." This was in 1934 or something. So, there was already this awareness on her part even though she didn't understand that she could consider herself an independent person an understanding of, what's this? And she was able to verbalize that. Mm -hmm. This somehow answers your question, but I forget how. Yeah, because it has to do with... I think I think you're talking a little bit about mirroring too with the young men. Wait, what, you know what? when you when you bring this up. Oh, what would advice would I give a fifty? Exactly. They... Yeah. So what I'm trying to get at, I think, listening to myself, I hear myself getting this. <laughs> that I think men have evolved at least at a certain social stratum have evolved to a better understanding. But one of the other things that men haven't evolved to in many ways, the real interior shift. Many of us know what's not allowed to be said, but we have subtler ways of accomplishing the same thing. And that's not so good, and we have to, we have to get better at it. We have to keep listening to women. I, I have to tell you, it's corny, and it sounds like I'm putting down a whole entire sex. But I really do think, by and large, not in all cases, but on average... Women are better at being human than men are. And I think we can learn from women. And if we don't, if we think, if we dominate them and not learn from them, because it can be annoying when they try to make you a better person. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, who wants to do that? (laughs) But you need to mirror people too, so role models, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I would take my cue from Casey. 
what my advice to a 50-year-old man or a man of any age would be, listen. It's better to listen. It's good for all of us. Over all the years of seeing you as the good guy in MASH and everything else we've seen you in, when Gordon and I went to see you in Glen Gary, Glen Roth, and you were playing really the villain, you seem to be having the best. <laughs> it is. It's very nice. I was on a, I was on a television show called uh, The Blacklist, and on my first scene in the show, I walk in, and I take the leading man, hang him by a chain, and torture him. <laughs> it was so nice. You get to do things when you play a villain they won't let you do in real life. <laughs> You got away with murder too, and I've, I, you know what's of, funny is I must make this really gooey impression on people <laughs> because every time I play a villain, somebody says, "Well, you've never done that before," <laughs> and about about half the time, even Hawkeye was a flawed person. Yes, mm-hmm. that was your yeah. point. Tom oh, did, was yeah. talking about that. Yeah. Well, I was interested in the way in which Hawkeye's sarcasm is not exactly the kind of communication that you're. No, I don't think I'd want to spend too much time in his company. Come to think of it. If he was going to behave like that all the time, I mean, it was a sarcastic humor at other people's expense. But I think, I don't know, what do you think of this? Seems to me that for a dramatic character to work, that character works best if it has human flaws. A character without flaws is boring. It doesn't seem real, and there's nobody without a flaw. No two people can live together without being upset with each other once in a while because each of them has flaws. If the Pope married Mother Teresa, <laughs> I swear to God they'd be in marriage counseling. Before I didn't realize we were, you were talking much about uh, telling storytelling and science, which I'm really excited about tonight because I my other hat as a um, in foundation work is working on a foundation that promotes invention and innovation, Mm. mostly uh, attracting talented young people to become inventors um, in this country and around the world to solve problems um, through inventing. And um, we definitely work with trying to, you know, to get people to learn how to explain and tell their stories. And I think in science, in basic science, is so we wouldn't have the problems we are having today with people doubting whether it was global warming, if scientists were maybe a little bit better at telling their story. So I think it's really important. And that thing of global warming, it's very interesting. There are people who are studying that now, and and I think they're finding evidence that it's not the argument that you make that helps them understand it better or listen to you. It's first establishing a common thread between the two of you. One woman who goes to communities and will talk about global warming, but first, for 15 minutes, she'll talk about how she, in her childhood, shared the same life that these people had. Mm -hmm. And then it's not somebody from the outside telling them that they're ignorant and they should know better. It's somebody sharing with them what what they've gone through Mm -hmm. and how they've learned for themselves and... It's a little easier, I think, for the, the other people to listen to it. And it's not a question of propaganda. I mean, it could be misused like that. And sometimes scientists think, rarely, but once in a while, a scientist will say, 
you're trying to teach me how to convince people of things. And my job as a scientist is to find the evidence and let it go where it might. If they don't accept it, they don't accept it. But to be able to present the evidence as evidence and have it accepted as evidence is a step that you have to go through. That's not convincing somebody of the evidence. It's If it's evidence, maybe the evidence needs to be questioned. Maybe there was a variable that wasn't considered. That's a really good question for somebody to raise. But if they don't even listen to the evidence in the first place, then you can't have a conversation. So it's, we're not trying to teach scientists to convince people of things. We're trying to get them to share information back and forth to listen and to listen to the audience as well. The public is afraid of genetically modified foods. Nobody can eat anything that hasn't been genetically modified, and they don't know that. Yes? Can you talk a little more about improvisation, the process and how you set it up? Yeah. There are a few kinds of improvisation. Basically, the, the two main kinds are comedy improvisation and what we do, which is based on the work of a woman called Viola Spolin, S-P-O-L-I-N. And she really revolutionized the teaching of drama in this country. It's an amazing number of stars in acting who learned improvisation to start with. And you don't necessarily see it in Oregon. I mean, they're acting in scripts that are written, but there's a spontaneity about the performance. There's a willingness to go beyond what's on the surface and explore and take off that improvisation really helps you get. And her exercises... She worked with immigrants in Chicago 70, 80 years ago, maybe more, and started a children's theater and developed hundreds of exercises that are really based on games. And in order to play the game and do well in the game, you have to observe the other person. And through that, you can achieve amazing things. The audience watching can see two people eating lunch with imaginary silverware and imaginary food and they're chatting about something and they're not giving hints about anything but somehow you come to understand and everybody in the audience agrees what's going on outside the room because of the way they're behaving they share that with you by their behavior that's one of the games that's an advanced game this what we did the mirroring is a very early thing it's one of the first things you do but they're all directed toward communion, community. And that group experience, when the people on stage are having that kind of a group experience, the people in the audience join the experience. It's very hard if two people are talking together and they're, they're really interested in what they're saying, like some a party like this, and they're really connected. You kind of want to get closer and hear what it's about. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens on the stage. When the people connect, the audience connects with them. And it doesn't have to be an intense kind of connection. I used to think relating had to do with getting my face closer to the other actor's face. <laughs> so the director would say, you're not relating. Well, relate more. And I go, <laughs> I was falling over. In fact, you can relate to the other person with your back to them. Can I say one of my other favorite lines from the book? Having a conversation is not waiting for the other person to stop talking so you can say what you were going to say all along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all know what that's like. We all know what it's like to be on both so sides improv, of that. So improv, just to get back to what you're saying, it yeah. forces you. 
yeah, you, forces you. You must. You're not waiting to say something. You don't know what you're going to say until the other person makes you say it. That's the essence of good acting for me. If I'm on stage, I don't say my line because I've memorized it from the script and it's the next thing in the script. I say it because the other person makes me say it. I know what the line is, but it doesn't come out of me and it doesn't come out of me in a certain way unless the other person does something or says something that I respond to. And that that means it comes out a little different every night if I'm on the stage. And that makes, if the other person is good at it, that makes them say it a little differently too. Just a little. The music changes a little bit. And that's thrilling. You follow it where it goes. When I was a kid, I used to stand in the wings watching my father act in Guys and Dolls. And he was acting with this great comic actor called Sam Levine. And Sam followed the music of it wherever it went. Same lines every night, standing in the same place. Came out of him differently. And as a result, he would get laughs in different places every night. That's sort of unheard of. Actors cherish their laughs too much so that if you know you get a laugh on a certain line, you're looking forward to it, and one night it doesn't come because you're looking forward to it. <laughs> the great actors Lunt and Fontaine are supposed to have been in a scene one night, and they come off stage, and he says to her, what is it every night when I said to you, past the salt, I would get a huge laugh. What happened tonight? And she said, tonight you were asking for the laugh. You weren't asking for the salt. <laughs> One of the things you talk about briefly in the, in the book, too, is the way in which this all applies to writing as a form of communication as well. And I'm really excited about the idea that we can work with between LARB and your center to kind of bring some yes, more science writing great we into our pages. Uh, we, we, we work with... Uh, scientists, sometimes graduate students, sometimes senior scientists, to communicate through writing the joy they have, the, the amazing things they discover, the difficulties, the human process of science. And if they can put that into words that suit right. your publication, mm -hmm. then that be great. We have an online, a blogging course now that is on... We do. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah we do. We're in collaboration with Scientific American, and so we teach some writing skills online, and there's sort of a prize at the end where if they're good enough, they get space in Scientific American. So, so I, think, I think this is LARP could do really well because absolutely. you have art and you have essays and you have politics and you have all of this. And because of Alan, I started to bring improv teachers into my writing classes. Oh, good. And, and it has a huge effect because they notice there's somebody on the other side of what you're writing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it's is, not is, just... Were you surprised to find that that, that, that worked? I was... The whole thing just shocked me, but it, <laughs> it, it's incredibly... I mean, I don't know why. You're just paying attention to other people, but we don't realize we're not doing it. It has a, an effect in so many unexpected ways. Itzhak Perlman Music Camp, where he brings teenagers together from all over the world who are some of the greatest musicians of their age range. He and his wife, Toby, asked me to come in and work with some of the kids because they were, they were uncomfortable speaking to an audience about what they were going to play. So that was just verbal communication. So I said, sure, I'm great, because what I secretly hoped was that the improv would help their playing, mm -hmm. make them more spontaneous, listen to them more. And we did the same thing. They spoke and played. Then we improvised for three hours, and they spoke and played again. And I said to Itzhak, am I, am I kidding myself? 
aren't most of them better? And he said, yeah, except that one kid. He was always good. <laughs> well, I did learn from you that we should listen to our audience. What I'm hearing somehow is that they want dessert. Yeah. So, <laughs> but we have one more question. Could I ask you, would you share a little bit about your internal process when you've spoken to graduating classes? What you feel is important to say to the college students or the... You know, I think what I try to do is I take it very seriously. I dig down and I try to think of what really matters and if I can make it matter to them. It doesn't always... It's hard because they're, they're so much younger than me. I try to remember back on what I was going through at that age, but it was a different time. The culture was different. You, you were never really alike. I had a kind of real challenge this summer they gave me an honorary degree at the University of Dundee in Scotland. And they said, now, we want you to get up and talk, but you only have three minutes. <laughs> so and it's hard to say anything in three minutes, unless it's the Gettysburg Address. You know? <laughs> okay, so I got up and I said, I only have three minutes, so I'm going to tell you the secret of life. Because that doesn't take long to tell you, especially as you get older. You know, things rust and fall off your body. And you've got to adjust to this. The secret of life is three things. Adapt, adjust, revise. It's what evolution does. It's what people do. It's how we get used to technology. It's how we get rid of things we don't want. It's how we learn. Adapt, adjust, and revise. So I thought, I don't know if it made it to the kids or not, but... Two of the professors there took three of their lab doors and they wrote in big letters on each door, adapt, adjust, revive. <laughs> so I made it through to somebody. Join me thanking Alan Alda. Thank you. Thank you all. And Casey Cole. Karen, Eric, thank you so much. All of you, thank you for coming. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Thank you.